Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season, and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and if you're not tuning in from the Ottawa area, I'm sure there's an independent bookseller, wherever you are in the world, who would be happy to sell you a copy. It's Pride Week, which seems like a fitting time to be sharing these conversations on surviving and thriving. Up first, novelist and social worker Farzana Doctor, a Lambda Literary Award winner, who will be back on the podcast later this season to talk about her latest novel, Seven, spoke with Joanne Vanicola. Joanne is an Emmy Award-winning actor and the author of a memoir, All We Knew But Couldn't Say. We'll start with a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. I had a baby when I was 15, a boy, she says in a soft tone. I sit on her bed, look into her eyes, not wanting her to lose her focus in case she forgets what we are talking about or changes the subject, falling away from reality what she does too often. Not now, please. I turn on her reading lamp below all the machines that monitor her heart, her oxygen. Tell me about the baby, Mom. Her boy, she says calmly, without breaking eye contact. What year was he born? 1955. I remember. I was scared because I knew they wouldn't let me keep him. Who wouldn't let you? The nuns, the home, my mother, father, but I wanted my baby. I even named him Luke after my father so they would let me keep him, but they didn't. I feel her emptiness taking over the room, her longing. It is him. Luke takes over the space as if there is an invisible umbilical cord stretching out from her body into the universe, still attached. I grab the popsicle stick from her hand as the juice melts onto her blanket. You were in a home? Yes. Where was it? It was on Stanley Street in Montreal. I remember we used to have to stay inside, hide our bumps, weren't allowed outside much. They didn't want people staring. We had to keep the curtains shut in the bedrooms too, like a prison. I had learned about these homes of the 1950s from other women, but I had no idea my mother was forced into one. Who was the baby's dad? I ask. It was my father, she says, without missing a beat. So, Joanne Vanicola is an Emmy Award-winning actor, author, and advocate. Vanicola is the chair of Out Actra TO, the LGBTQ plus committee at Actra Toronto, the union representing performers in the film, radio, television, and new media industries, and sits on the Sexual Assault Ad Hoc Committee for Women in Film and Television. Vanicola is the recipient of the Leslie Yao Award for Volunteerism in 2019 and the recipient of the Margaret Trudeau Advocacy Award in 2020. Joanne founded the nonprofit organization Youth Out Loud, raising awareness about child abuse, sexual violence, and youth rights. All We Knew But Couldn't Say was released in June 2019, was featured on the list of top 21 memoirs to read last summer by Bustle magazine, and was featured on the next chapter by Sheila Rogers, the Toronto Star, the Globe, CTV Mornings, Now Magazine, the Girly Club, 
and the Lambda Literary Reviews. It was also a bestseller at Glad Day Bookshop in Toronto and made the top 40 books to read in summer 2020 by CBC Books and was shortlisted for the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize for Nonfiction in 2020. They are currently co-developing a new series and working on their second book, exploring themes of LGBTQI homelessness. You can learn more about Joanne at www.joannevanicola.com or on Twitter or Instagram at Joanne Vanicola. Joanne Vanicola grew up in a violent home with a physically abusive father and a mother who had no sexual boundaries. After being pressured to leave home at 14 and after 15 years of estrangement, Joanne learns that their mother is dying. Compelled to reconnect, they visit with her, unearthing a trove of devastating secrets. Joanne relates their journey from child performer to Emmy award-winning actor, from hiding in the closet to embracing their own sexuality, from conflicted child and sibling to independent adult. All we knew but couldn't say is a testament to survival, love, and the belief that it is possible to love the broken and to love fully, even with a broken heart. My name is Farzana Doctor, and I'm a novelist based in Toronto. I have a new novel, Seven, releasing on September 5th. So um, I wanted to ask you about memoir a bit, because I know that when you first began this whole process of writing this book, it started out as fiction, and then you later shifted it to memoir. Can you talk about the process of making that decision and how you ended up with maybe memoir is better for the material you're working with? It was very emotionally difficult. The novel um, wasn't working as a novel, I think because the memories were so personal uh, and I wasn't an experienced novelist. So I was, you know, it read more like memoir than it did novel. And anybody who read it would say the same thing until I finally decided to, um, to turn it into the memoir. I think it was the decision. It was a, a very private decision because I knew that by doing that, I would, I would be making, you know, a, a, a private life public. Uh, and so that, that took a lot of deep thinking. When you write a memoir, you're making like your personal histories and your stories very visible. So how do you manage that visibility? Like it's been a year. So how have you been managing that visibility? That's a very good question. In fact, I just was speaking with someone last week about this very thing, because I, I think if I'd been a little wiser or knew what I was getting into, I would have had more supports in place for myself. Uh, but I didn't really know what the process would be. Um, I could have used a little, you know, place to go talk or, um, you know, maybe a memoirist who'd, who'd been in my shoes before, but I didn't really have that person to go to per se. So I, I, yeah, I think that it's a good idea to maybe have a circle of support and get some, somebody that you trust to speak with. Um, and, you know, I, I I thought a lot about the process and I feel pretty good about it now. I feel like I got through it. I navigated it as well as I could. I've recommended your book to survivors of sexual abuse um, by mothers because there doesn't seem to have been a lot written on that subject so much. So um, what do you think is going on systemically that there haven't hasn't been a lot of writing about sexual abuse by mothers? I think it's still something that the culture does not really speak about. 
Um, I, I think, you know, historically, there's this sort of myth about about the mother being the nurturer and, uh, you know, the loving one. And, you know, uh, but to me, that's a myth. Just like, you know, there are myths about fathers as well. And um, I think that women who grow up in violence, uh, we don't just magically erase the memories of those experiences and intergenerational violence as well, right? I mean, my mother was a, was a product of abuse and how her brain was wired and how things got crossed, how she developed, all of those things were, um, were impeded and impacted and, 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 and hurt by her own childhood. And, uh, you know, that didn't just go away. And I think for mothers who abuse, um, I think there's probably, I, I mean, I, I don't know statistically, but I would, I would guess that there's a, a history of some kind of violence, not to mention misogyny. Uh, and uh, I think that those, those this, the oppressions that we experience as girls and women in and of itself is very, very difficult, let alone adding child abuse to it. So for someone like my mother and her generation, uh, I'm not surprised that she became abusive. Um, I mean, there are many forms of abuse, and certainly sexual abuse is not one that we speak a lot about when it comes to our mothers, um, but it happens, and so we need to be able to talk about that and uh, to do what we can to sort of change the culture, change the conversation, or have the conversation so that people are... Uh, are not as afraid or ashamed to, to talk about these things uh, either in private or in public um, because there's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, it's, it's just part of people's lives and, you know, we all deserve a right to be here, to heal, to, to have, you know, our human rights, our dignity, our, our voices, our strength, you know, all of those things, right? So I, I think it's really important to talk about. Is there anything you've learned about yourself since the final edits of the book that you wish you could go back in and add or change? Oh, yeah, lots, actually. I think because I was a first-time author, I, was, I had a lot of fear um, because I didn't want to rock the boat too much in some ways. And my memoir was so raw, I didn't quite... <clears throat> uh, you know, I didn't know how much power I had or ability to, you know, change certain things or, or ask for certain things or even change some of the, the writing. So uh, there are lots of pieces that I left out of the memoir that I, I, I wish I had kept in. Uh, I think some of the language I may have um, shifted as well. There's this one big runaway scene when I was 12 that never made it into the book and I hopped on a greyhound from Montreal to Toronto as a 12 year old and, and ran away. And I went and found this lesbian named Jane <laughs> who ha happens to be Jane Farrow who was quite known in the Toronto community. Um, and all I knew was that she lived across from a Kentucky fried chicken. And I didn't know Toronto and I wandered the streets for hours until like midnight or 1 a.m. until I finally found the Kentucky fried chicken on Queen Street West and I recognized the building that I had first met her in, and I was screaming, Jane, Jane, from the streets down below. And she appeared over the ledge to see who's this, what's, who's calling me, and it was this kid. Who's this child? What is this child doing? So I slept on her roof for five days and talked about being a lesbian and not my coming out, but I asked her a lot of questions about being queer. 
and uh, I just was having a bad time and explained why I was staying with somebody at the time. My mother had let me stay at someone's house for a month, and that person hurt my feelings, and I just, I was just traumatized, and I and I left the city. But it was this whole adventure of talking about being queer and and running away and the experience of that, and uh, it it never really made it into the book, but. Uh, it was a moment in time. Yeah, Jane was great. I mean, she, I remember speaking with her for a couple of hours. She immediately called Montreal so that they knew where I was. And they had agreed that I would stay here for five days. Uh, and so it felt like, a, a, like I could breathe for five days. I could just pause and just be a person without people expecting things of me or demanding certain things of me as a 12-year-old. You know, I had a very, you know, a beginning career even as a 12-year-old. So all of those pressures to be female, to, to behave a certain way, to be a good kid, to go to school, when I was just a belligerent, raunchy little 12-year-old <laughs> who just wanted to explore my gender and sexuality and just be alone uh, and be away from authority. What an amazing example of community care, right? Like, this is often what we need. We often don't necessarily need a therapist or, you know, we, we don't need the social services. We need the Jane Farrow. I agree with you. I think that's what community could and should be about. And uh, the systems don't necessarily, they, they don't help the youth, particularly queer youth, um, who are struggling to, to find an identity. She was great. Honestly, she was so great. And I really wanted her in my book because... You know, it's a memory that I held forever and uh, very grateful to Jane because without knowing it, she was sort of a, an inspiration to me as a, as a young lesbian at the time who wasn't able to come out until I was a little bit older. But she gave me hope because I was able to see there was somebody out in the world who wasn't only just a lesbian, but she wasn't like a fan. Like she was just right out there. That would have been a fun scene. Oh my goodness. That's an amazing scene. I'm so glad you shared it today. Honestly, it was pretty amazing. And, and I, I think, you know, if it ever gets turned into like a film or something or optioned, I feel like that's something that might, you know, could find its way back in because it was pretty fun. So let's put it out to the universe that this would make a really good TV show or movie. Thank you, Farzana. I, I think so, too. And I've had a number of people actually contacting me about that. But um, So can you talk about the revision uh, decision? Because um, revision is a complicated process. So um, how did that get revised out? I had had a, a number of editors along the way and people giving opinions. And uh, sometimes those opinions were very, very good opinions. I mean, I don't, I don't think that they were bad opinions. And it's not about good or bad. I think the page count had to go down and decisions had had to be made because I couldn't publish a 400 or 370 page memoir. Nobody wants to read that, especially mine. It was a bit intense. <laughs> Can you tell us about your next projects? There are two, there are three, four <laughs> things that, that, that I'm working on, but you know, two of them are book related. And um, I just feel really passionate about queer homeless uh, kids and um, so I've been sort of developing this story for some time and started to write it. I'm not very very far in. I'm probably about 55 pages in, um, but it's about uh, you know, LGBTQ homelessness and a non-binary 15-year-old uh, you know, who gets thrown out of the house uh, by their parents. And so it's that sort of journey of survival and coming out and 
dealing with conditional love and uh, the system. Um, and yeah, so I'm in the middle of writing that. And I wrote a little kid picture book that I'm trying to figure out how to publish as well about gender, um, identity and sexuality, but from a really sort of simplistic sort of kid-like uh, space. Um, and another YA that I would like to write uh, uh, about a girl who's assaulted during COVID. Um, but those are, you know, different stories that I'm, I'm working on and some screen stories that I'm trying to develop with some friends um, as well. Tell me about your creativity during COVID. Yeah, I've always been a little uh, able to isolate and and create in this space. So in some ways... It's not different, but in other ways, because of what's happening politically and culturally, it's very, very different. Um, certainly, you have to you know, wear a mask whenever you leave and deal with all the life and death issues that we all have to deal with during a pandemic, so that's definitely scary. But also, you know, the greater political culture that we're in right now, and I, I don't know, it's not just COVID, it's, it's Black Lives Matter, it's uh, systemic oppression, it's, uh, there's so many things happening, and all of those things, um, I think impact my writing and impact certainly my day-to-day and my body, I mean, all of it, right? So we're all finding a way to navigate through this pandemic, and some of us are doing it uh, with a little less anxiety, and some of us are doing it while trying to care for other people, and some people are doing it with a lot less than us, and some people are doing it with a hell of a lot more. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of, you just have to dig deep and stay strong and, and take care of yourself and try to take care of other people and, and um, try to, to be functioning and, and creative and working. So I, I, I've understood that all of those pieces are really important at this time in particular. So when I get off track too much, I, I have a little chat with myself and get back to it. That was Farzana Doctor in conversation with Joanne Vanicola on their memoir, All We Knew But Couldn't Say. For those of you who missed it, last Sunday we launched our Sunday interview series, and first out of the gate was the brilliant Billy Ray Belcourt talking with Ellen Chang Richardson about his memoir, A History of My Brief Body. Here's the youngest ever winner of the Griffin Prize sharing a brief excerpt. To hear their conversation, and it's a great one, just visit writersfestival.org and click play. from an essay called Fragments from My Half-Existence. Cultural theorist Sian Nai defines diplomacy as an experience of boredom that is overwhelming, excessive, against calm. Sometimes I'm so bored with my puny life that it feels as though the roof above me is going to cave in. When not distracted by the noise of the social, life looms over me like a single rain cloud. Perhaps my next book will be about the fury that Indians sublimate to go about being in a world we didn't want, a line of inquiry that repeats in almost all my writing. My book would be a speech act unto itself in that I would unleash that fury onto the page. It wouldn't, however, help people live better. And because of this, it would be a failed text. Han Kang wrote a book called The White Book, translated from the Korean by Deborah Smith, that likely does help people live better. She's unflinching in her exploration of what it is to grow up inside a story of grief. 
of what it is to live in a place without boundedness where old memories materialize en masse. In a section called Lace Curtain, she meditates on what a freshly laundered bed linen can come to connote. And I quote, You are a noble person. Your sleep is clean. And the fact of your living is nothing to be ashamed of. Although it's beautifully rendered, I would want to turn this observation inside out. For I'm prone to spoiling even well-nourished words. The governing thesis of my book would be that we aren't noble people, and therefore the fact of our living is something to be ashamed of. The question I'd ask, what might it look like for Indians to refuse life in the wake of all that's happened to us in a country in which we're social experiments before all else? If I tried to compose anything but sad poems, I fear it'll be akin to a widower trying to convince others that he's found happiness again by wearing a t-shirt that says happiness. Why poetry? It allows for a romance of the negative that doesn't foreclose the possibility of a non-cruel kind of optimism. The political climate in which art is made will determine whether poetry is a unit of accusation or revelation. I'm writing a literature of blame for the record. <laughs> to my mind, one of the most vital modalities of decolonial life is that of remaining unaddressable to a settler public that feasts on our misery. Most of the time, writing a book seems incompatible with this. At the book launch of This Wound is a World, a white woman begged me not to kill myself. What this meant is that I hadn't yet died in a bewildering way. Then and now, I was and am a statistical and sociological feat. What she saw where my body should have been was an outline of a body crowded with indicators of my expiration date. She heard the terrible music, not of a desire for another world, but of a premature death, a mingling. I should have asked her to lament herself, her Canadian-looking practice. On a full midday flight from Toronto to Edmonton, white lady leans into me. Is Edmonton home? Me, restrained. Yes. Did you have a nice time in Toronto? Pulls headphone out of right ear. I was in Ottawa, actually, just connecting. Oh, what were you doing in Ottawa? I was at a literary festival. I'm a writer. Do you have a book? What is it called? This Wound is a World. Her eyes widen. Oh, This Wound is a World. What's it about? It's, uh, I'm indigenous. It has a lot to do with colonialism. I teach therapists at the University of blank. And recently, a number of elders helped me really rethink how trauma affects indigenous peoples. Trauma isn't something you acquire. In my head, I think, you as in me specifically. Trauma is literally who you are. An announcement by a flight attendant takes her attention elsewhere. Later, over Winnipeg, she asks if she can purchase food for me. Encounters of this sort are like a leg stuck out in front of you. You self-interrogate. I made to suspend yourself in an existential limbo. There is the material you in the airplane who is called into an openness you have no power over. Then the abstract you, the white woman conjures from a bank of public ideas that are injurious. What's more, a third you exists. The lyric you. He who observes, keeps watch, analyzes from afar, takes in data, then writes from a distance. 
in the end, all that matters is that all of you are bruised, being in but not held by the present, belonging to a past that endures and a future that moves backwards. The problem is that the present is in the air, is now, which is always an empty hand opening and closing inside us like a heartbeat. Nothing else, a sustained loneliness thrusts one into a moral position. To be emptiness animated or personified is to be a true warning sign. Thank you. Our second conversation on surviving and thriving features Natasha Coltevin, also known as DJ Del Pilar, a queer black Latina vocalist who is the resident DJ at Ottawa's coziest queer dance party, Homofono. I still get goosebumps remembering her perform a Tracy Chapman song many, many moons ago when we were both still teenagers. Tasha spoke with Elena Martin, producer, entrepreneur, musician, the founder of Westfest, a veritable force of nature and someone dedicated to community and to creating opportunities for all of us to engage with art, about her memoir, Dyke. My name is Natasha Koldevin, and I'm here with producer, musician, and author of Dyke, a memoir, Elena Martin. Yay! Yay. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Elena. Hi, thanks for having me. I grew up in Montreal, so reading the first parts of your book were like a window into what it's like to grow up in small town Ontario back then. You know, of course, uh, by the time we got to the 90s in the book, I was like transported back to the decadence of the era like the little snapshots of the bars and Bank Street, like pinged all sorts of memories for me too. Like remembering how our lives, mine in particular, and relationships that back then were, gosh, like bittersweet, but exhausting. So that got me thinking. Memoirs are labor intensive and they take time and energy and willingness to open up to become vulnerable. What made you decide to write a memoir? Yeah, so uh, thank you, Tasha. Uh, I've been wanting to write a memoir since I was uh, 16 years old when my uh, grade 12 guidance counselor told me that I should write a memoir at that point in my life. Uh, and, and then every year afterwards, I thought, wow, I've got so much more to add to that memoir. I've got so much more to add to that memoir. And it just kept going on and on. But as you know, I've been a producer of many, many things over the last uh, two decades. And it has really taken all of my time where the thought of writing a memoir has really just been that of a dream Mm. until I knew that um, the, uh, it was time to end uh, the free community festival that I was uh, producing and running for 16 years, uh, Westfest. So when I knew that I could no longer sustain this free event and, you know, the mandate of the festival was to be free uh, it had just run its course. I'm not someone who thinks everyone, everything has to be forever. So um, I knew it was time. Everyone who had been running it with me for the last few years knew it was time. So yeah. when I realized that it was time to shut that down, I realized that there would be a section of my life um, pretty much December through June, mm. uh, which I'd spent for 16 years producing that event. That's pretty much full time a six month period that I would spend running that festival, I realized right away that summer, which was strangely enough last summer, um, I just decided, okay, I have six months free um, in the next year. And I think it's time to start this project that I wanted to start. I started in the fall, just mapping it out, framing it out and reading as many memoirs as I could possibly Mm. read. 
Yeah. And, and I read a lot of memoir. <laughs> and then I took some night classes at Harvard and Stanford for publishing and wow. writing. Uh, yeah. and, and some memoir classes by some really, some, some professors of memoir writing mm. and, and took some night classes myself. And I really did the research that I felt I needed to do to be able to do this properly. And yeah. well, uh, I knew I had the material. I always wanted to write this memoir. And then all of a sudden my life gave me a window where I could do it. Yeah. And I started the project management of writing that memoir. Sure. And here, uh, a year after the uh, essential idea, um, we're talking about it. Is it different planning an event and having like your oh, event yes. office, you know, to switch over and pivot into like a memoir office and that sort of creative space? Oh, it's night and day. And what I did was completely dismantled Westfest and actually erased every site of it from my home. Dismantled and, and, and dispersed of everything. There's no site of that festival in my home. I needed to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, my part, then I live out in the woods in Quebec yeah. uh, alone, and it was the dead of winter when I started the project, and my mm-hmm. partner is a professor at the universities, both of them, and was gone from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. Wow. So I was alone out in the woods in the dead of winter with my two chihuahuas, and I had nothing but time. <laughs> so right. time is what I took, and uh, and yeah, I wrote the book. So you had this time to for lack of a better term, germinate in your memories um, and put them on paper. Um, but then because, I mean, even on brand, <laughs> reading what made it into the book, um, you've led such an exciting life. Like, how did you choose what eventually went in? Okay, that's a great question because last summer when I was framing out the memoir, and reading all the other memoirs, mm-hmm. I realized I can't put my stories in a single memoir. So that's when I decided that this first memoir would actually be three and that it would be a series. And wow. so what you've just read is the base, the very first book in the Dyke series. Wow. And the way I did it was this is about learning about me, my history, who I am, why I am the way I am, mm. <laughs> uh, what created this person. Right. <laughs> and uh, the next two books um, follow along. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, 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 it's something I framed uh, specifically like this is a series and it's, it's uh, and I have a very strict timeline for it all as well. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like I'm writing the second book yeah. right now. So oh my I'm, gosh. Yeah. I'm so just, breaking news, eh? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well. Yeah, for sure. Exclusive for Writer's Fest. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Dyke is the first in a series. Yeah. So the series will be Dyke. The next book will be Dyke 2. And then it'll have a tagline title of its own. And then okay. Dyke 3. And, and it's, uh, the next book is out for Christmas. Uh, oh, this coming, okay. This coming Christmas. So yeah, again, yeah. back to my project manager, 20 years being a project manager, 20 mm-hmm. years being a producer, 20 years being an artistic director. Right. I mean, I've just taken all of these skills that I always gave to others. Right. And I've finally just, now I'm giving them to myself. And I believe that I deserve that. Yeah. And this is the result of that. Okay, so originally when you started writing the memoir, did you say, okay, this is going to be a series or like, I can't fit everything in one book. And then how did you decide to parcel that off? Like, how did the salient parts of what you wanted to get out first, like first impressions type thing, how did you choose 
um, what we all got to read. I needed to really let strangers be able to, like people who know me really know who I am and what I'm made of. But I needed mm -hmm. strangers to be able to know who I was and what I was made of. Yeah. So I needed to tell the real, I needed to really lay the brickwork, uh, tell the, the stories of who I am and why. Uh, uh, the most, my biggest demons. I needed mm. to talk about my biggest fears. I needed to release as much vulnerability as I could yeah. so that people could get to know the real me, not a fake uh, character. I mean, right. you know, that's the thing about memoir. This is about a real person. And how do you describe yourself to someone? Well, you tell your stories. And so... Yeah. Uh, this is the base book. This tells the story of Elena Martin. The next book tells the stories of uh, uh, a 10-year period of, uh, of my queer existence mm. uh, between the middle 90s and the middle 2000s. And it's, it's really all about the queer spaces we forged, uh, the safe spaces we forged, and how we gathered as queers in that decade. And, right. and it's really quite... I'm, I'm just having so much fun writing it, actually. <laughs> Your persona, like your brand, is one thing, you know, and then we've gotten um, a peek under the flap, as it were, you know, with this first memoir. And I guess from, from everything we know about you and from reading the book, uh, you know, you are obviously a natural entrepreneur, like a do-it-yourself kind of lesbian. Mm -hmm. And so it makes, it makes total sense that that you self-published and that you took over the business of promotion and fulfillment of the book. Like you said, you were doing events for yourself, but mostly these were community driven. You wanted to create spaces and events for your community and like fill a need that you saw was, was apparent, but this is different. You know, this is filling a need for yourself. So how was, um, how, how were those two things different event production and, and, memoir production yeah um very very different um very this is a very lonely life uh, mm. running festivals and producing big award presentations and shows television theater i've been in every theater across the country from coast to coast to coast i've actually made theaters in nunavut that didn't exist wow. um and created shows in them so uh, this is very different. This was a lonely world. This is a lonely world I'm in now. So I'm kind of like at ease with everyone being in this kind of isolation because mm -hmm. I was feeling very isolated through the book, uh, the writing of it. And, uh, and then COVID happened and everyone was kind of in that isolated place. So, uh, but this is very different, Tasha. This is yeah. like night and day different from being surrounded by people, 100 volunteers, 50, 60 staff, running at one point a million and a half dollar community festival. I mean, mm -hmm. and you know, this is solitary work. This is all by me. Listen, I want to touch on what you talked about, about self-publishing because that yeah. was very specific. And that was a very strong singular choice of mine that I made very soon okay. in the process. So when I thought about the book and I thought about memoir and I decided, okay, this is going to, the first one's going to be a series, Dyke, a series of three books. I just knew that I, and I created this timeline right away because that's what I do as a producer and a project manager. So I created this timeline. I was like, whoa, like this, like this. And I was like, yeah. how am I going to write a book in January and have it out in June using a publisher? Like that's, that would never have happened, Tasha. I'd be, I'd either be still looking for the publisher to publish my work or I'd still be waiting for them to publish it. In fact, there's many authors who in the last couple of months have been sitting on, on finished projects because mm. of COVID 
the publishers haven't been able to do what they so it all worked out like I do have an angel because not only was I confident enough to take on that project because of my skills um, I'm so happy I did the other very important part is that this is a very personal project I did not want to pander or 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 mm. have anyone else's ideas or decisions about what would go into this book or any of my books <laughs> so call me a you know control freak or whatever this is my story i don't want anyone carving it or curving it in any way i also wanted to hire my own editors my own printer i wanted to put the money in hands of local people which i did i wanted my editor to be queer uh, I wanted control in the places. I wanted this book to be called Dyke. Now, right. I'll tell you, here's a, an example. Tasha, there's never been another book in history mm. published with the title Dyke. So really? why would I think that someone would want to do that for me? Mm -hmm. But that was so important for me to reclaim that word in such a public way. I yeah. mean, I've reclaimed it myself. And in my own life, I've always self-identified as a Dyke. Yeah. But I wanted to put it out there uh, that not only do I think the word is beautiful and strong and perfectly me, yeah. but I think it's perfectly a lot of people. And what I've realized after publishing this book is that I was right because I've heard from a lot of folks. So that makes me happy. That's yeah. Self-publishing. That's, I mean, I needed control and I needed, mm -hmm. I needed to, I needed it to, to work like a machine like me. <laughs> I can't wait around for people. It's not my style. <laughs> I can only imagine between the intersections that you encompass, you know, where you've come from, you're a woman, you're a dyke wanting to produce a book called Dyke. Um, I don't know if you had any previous experience in that. Like I know your, um, some of your strengths lie in the connections with people um, and who you know. Um, and when you meet people who are in positions that can be beneficial to you, um, it seems to me that the relationships you forge with them last was that helpful here? And did you feel like there were any initial barriers that you needed to overcome in self-publishing? Or did you say, screw it, and just completely circumvent that world and do it yourself? Uh, yeah, I did it all myself. In fact, yeah. I had to use a line of credit to, uh, to pay the initial editing and, pub and, and printing of the book. Sure. Uh, and quickly sold enough books to pay that off. Wow. and uh have put a few bucks in my pocket but uh you know this is uh yeah no i didn't run into well it was awesome because i didn't really tell anyone i just kind of kept quiet for a few months and then the majority of people found out oh my god I'm, i wrote i wrote a book in that quiet couple <laughs> of months uh but my best friends and closest people in the community came in and mm. uh and did you know, and edited and, and, you know, like beta readers were friends yeah. in the community. And, you know, I, so I just feel like, uh, and my partner, my loving partner, Cara Tierney has like done nothing but every day, you know, walk by my chair with me and my computer and kiss me on the head and tell me they were proud of me. So, I mean, that's all I really needed. And, uh, I don't know, I didn't have any roadblocks because again, I'm a, I'm a machine. Uh, yeah. and instead of, using my machine to power a whole bunch of other people. I was just using it for me. So mm. no, I mean, ISBNs, trademarks, copyrights, boom, yeah. bing, 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 bing. Like I just did all of these things uh, like it was a project. Wow. So if um, we have any young authors out there uh, listening, you know, feeling like they have a voice that isn't being heard um, and that may 
have run into roadblocks and or do you have any advice for them? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Get your work out there. Even if you just publish it on Facebook, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, get it out there. Um, and you know, like me, if you're willing to go in a little debt to get your work out there and then sell your books and make your profit. Yeah. I think like another thing to realize is that I, I mean, I did the research, right? I mean, yeah. I read 20 memoirs. Mm. Um, I, I took publishing night classes. Like I That's taught wild. myself how to be a self publisher. So, and that was all free, uh, free night classes. I mean, you can literally go to YouTube and just be like publishing classes and you'll just, it's so simple. So I would like to empower anyone to teach themselves how to do what they need done and do it. Uh, Because yeah, it, it, it can definitely be done. So near the end of the book, you write, and I quote, But I'd had to survive, and like always, I put my feelings aside to deal with my survival. So that's powerful stuff. I was going to ask you if you see writing this book as a culmination of a lifetime of not only surviving but thriving, but given that this is the first stanza in a a broader work, did this book sort of help you heal some of your childhood and other wounds? No, the healing already happened, which is why I think I was able to write about it. And that's from years and years of just pushing through. And uh, I feel blessed that I've been able to take control of of all of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, survival. Well, writing this book is surviving for me. Like, after I shut down the thing that took up the most of my time in a year, I had to fill it. I needed to find a way to... Like, what else was I going to do? And now with COVID and my entire industry, like I, have, I run a production company as well. Right, so sure. what's really weird is that all the other contracts that I would be doing mm-hmm. throughout the year all got canceled. Right. So, so now this is actually literally surviving. So now I'm, I'm writing these books and this is what I'm planning on doing. And in fact, now my brain is starting to think outside of the series and how mm-hmm. there's other things I want to write. Um, so no, I, I look at this as just the next chapter (laughs) (laughs) in my survival. Uh, yeah. Right. And well, you may have hinted at something there. Um, like, are you looking to publish other people's work as well? Well, you know what? What a great question, because I was thinking like someone else came to me and said, hey, this queer friend of mine wrote this book and she doesn't know what to do and she doesn't she can't get it published. Blah, blah, blah. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I really at that moment thought, hey, hmm, this is really interesting. I can totally do this for others. So, yeah, in the future, I actually might consider EM Publishing, which is the publishing house that I've created for myself. Right. Uh, might take on other queer work that I think is really needed out in the world that mm-hmm. just can't find its legs for one reason or another. Uh, but that would be after my series of three books for sure, because right. all of my focus and time and energy. And listen, I can't even begin to tell you the kind of self-discipline you need to wake up at 6 a.m. every day and write for five hours straight. Yeah. Um, and uh, I give myself a window of, of uh, six weeks to write uh, it took me six weeks to write the first book. Uh, wow. it's, it's a, my, it's my timeline for this next book is six weeks of writing. It's wow. every day, six hours a day. Uh, so that, that's self-discipline. And it's only because I've always been my own boss and always mm-hmm. had to acquire and use self-discipline that right. I've been able to do that. Jeepers. <laughs> that's, amazing. that's quite amazing. Gosh. 
Got to pay the bills, mama. Got, got to pay the bills. And this has been, I'm sure, quite a pivot for you. Your basic livelihood, dead stop, six months yeah. ago. And so you yeah. pivot and use something that is personal and um, integral to how you've survived. You've pivoted and used that to thrive. I think that's, that's kind of a central theme in your book and or books. That was cool. I like how you put that and how you saw that there. That was really, yeah. Well, Elena Martin, is there anything else you'd like to tell young readers out there? Oh, I think I just, I want them to read it and I want them to give it to young queer people and I want queer people to write their stories and I want to support that. So if anyone out there needs support, look me up. I'm not hard to find. And I would love to support you. I don't mean publish your book, but I do mean help you along, give you the helpful tips and hints and, the, you know, share the wisdom I've learned myself. Um, and just, yeah, us queer people, we, we are, like many people, um, we've missed historically the opportunity to tell our stories. Mm-hmm. And like many people, who now know that it's our time to tell our stories. I so believe that for our queer community. So I encourage every queer, um, all the colors under the rainbow to tell their stories. Now, now is the time. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tasha. It's such an honor to, with my first publication to have an opportunity to speak about this book, Dyke, a memoir. Um, at such an iconic Ottawa institution, International uh, Writers' Fest. Um, So I'm honoured. Thank you so much, and thanks to everyone at the Writers' Fest as well. That was Natasha Coltevin, a.k.a. DJ Del Pilar, in conversation with Elena Martin on her memoir, Dyke. Thank you all for listening today, and thanks again to Farzana Doctor, Joanne Vanicola, Natasha Coltevin, and Elena Martin for participating in Writers' Festival Radio. The Writers' Festival, including this podcast, is made possible by charitable donations from generous individuals like you. So if you enjoy what we do, please consider making a tax-creditable donation at writersfestival.org. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Join us next Friday, September 4th, for Episode 3, History Keeps Evolving, featuring Aslan Hunter, Jill Adamson, and Maggie O'Farrell.